Hello and welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 102. Now, I promised you when I was chatting to Dr. Ralph Esposito on uh, the first time he came on the show that we would have to do a part two because it felt like we really just scratched the surface on men's health. And so he is back today and we talk about lots of stuff. We talk about cardiology, we talk about man boobs, we talk about brain health. We really uh, managed to fit, once again, a heck of a lot of things into an episode. And still, it felt like we got to the end and we need to do a part three. I'm just so glad to include uh, these really important focuses on men's health on the show because often all the women are worrying about women's things and, and, and our men tend to be less likely to go get help when something's a bit off or not right. And, you know, even if it means you kind of slightly have to be playing it in the car while your, your guy happens to be there or your dad or your brother, um, then, you know, let's get more men caring about their health, listening to early signs, uh, and and looking and understanding exactly why it's important to have uh, a awareness around lifestyle health. So uh, I hope you enjoy today's show. I just want to mention a couple of quick things before we jump into that show. Number one is that the Pregnancy and Motherhood Summit is very shortly starting in a couple of weeks. Uh, it's a wonderful uh, gathering of experts from around the world to really look at the protecting of the woman's health through pregnancy and the rehabilitation, I guess, of her body. Now, once you have the baby, there is a lot that we need to rebuild to get super healthy again because those little bubbers literally suck the life out of us as we grow them we lose things of our own and we need to rebuild those things so it's a wonderful look at um, women's health transitioning from pregnancy to being a parent and uh, I really encourage you to jump on it's free if that's a time of your life that you're at or you know someone who is uh, the details are in the show notes just share it with them the other thing I wanted to mention was you have one more week to make the most of uh, the, the chance to win a year's worth of coffee from Republica Organic, a beautiful fair trade Australian brand uh, soon to expand to the US. So you guys are going to be able to make the most of these incredible blends and beans. And, uh, and I, I'm just a huge fan. Uh, Jacqueline's a personal friend, the founder. She really pioneered and campaigned for awareness uh, of fair trade in the coffee sector back in 2004 when she started uh, Republica and really put the, the fact that we should be caring about what our farmers get paid, the working conditions they're in, regardless of whether we can see them on our doorstep or whether they're halfway across the world. And, uh, and uh, you know, it's not easy to be a pioneer to define why something's important. I have experienced that myself in um, pioneering the term low-tox and what that might mean and why it's important. And, uh, and I am I'm always so overjoyed to be able to collaborate with Republica. And the fact that they're giving you guys, one of you guys anyway, a uh, year's worth of coffee is definitely worth celebrating. Uh, so hop to the show notes. All you need to do is pop a little comment and say why you might like to win that year's worth of coffee and last time round we got some beautiful stories and I can't wait to read them all and choose a winner for this round. Uh, you also have 30% off their range and the details on how to get that are in the show notes too. 
Uh, um, we just got wind, actually, of the fact that they're making that a permanent uh, offering for our Lotox Life community. How good is that? 30% off coffee from here on in. So all the details are in the show notes. Go check it out. Now, uh, one more little thing, the book, Lotox Life, my book, it came out two months ago now in Australia, uh, a couple of weeks ago now in the UK and Ireland, and um, soon, soon, soon to be available in the US and Canada as well, September 4. So please head to Amazon. Uh, You can just Google Amazon Lotox Life, or you can head to the show notes and pop through my affiliate link. It's a lovely way for authors to earn a little bit more from the books that they write. Um, And uh, by shopping on amazon.com, leaving your review there, uh, it will really help because I'm not in America. I don't get to do lots of events and talks. So it's kind of hard for me to reach everybody over there. Um, I intend to try and do my best over the next couple of years. But if you're in America, the best thing you can do to support the Lotox message is to buy the book, leave a review uh, on Amazon.com. And uh, and as soon as September 4 rolls around, it'll all get shipped out to you. Uh, so thank you so much for supporting it. And I, I hope it brings you joy. I hope it makes it easier for you to explain to family members why uh, living Lotox is important. I think a lot of old-time Lotoxes are saying, finally, I can shut up and I can just hand the book across the table and go, right, just read the book. It's all in there. I'm not going to tell you anything more. Um, and, uh, yeah. So anyway, I could ramble on for days, but this is a really important conversation that I want to get cracking on now. So enjoy my chat with Ralph and, uh, I can't wait to see your comments about the show, um, on Instagram and, um, in the show notes, because last time a lot of people absolutely loved finally having a men's focus. So here we go again. Hey Ralph, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm really excited to be back. I know, so soon, right? Um, But I think uh, with the overwhelming response from the last time we spoke, uh, given this was kind of the first time we'd done a men's health-focused topic, everyone was like, there's still so much to cover. So I was like, it's okay, we'll get Ralph back, and here we are. Um, (laughs) I'm back. Yep, you're back. And for anyone who hasn't heard our first show together, please go back a few shows and listen because... That's where we really focus on the male hormone picture, um, uh, testosterone versus estrogen and all the issues that are, that are happening in the, in the modern world um, around imbalances there for men. Um, and we briefly kind of touched on, oh gosh, that's just like the worst pun ever, touched on prostate health. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but, uh, I do it, it all the time. I know, right? It's a really good show. So head back and listen to that one. But today I want to kick off with a big one that while we're starting to realize um, that heart disease is very much a big discussion to have on women's health, it still was really sort of cemented by Uh, all these men sort of 50, 60 plus having heart attacks from the sort of 40s, 50s onwards, right? And this cholesterol theory that then came in to supposedly save us from heart disease. And yet it has um, grown year on year to be a massive killer for men worldwide, um, specifically in developed countries. Uh, And I'd love to start there. Nice small topic, don't you think, Ralph? Yeah, well, just so, you know, you can't dig that into that way too deeply. <laughs> just a quick one to get us started. Um, so cholesterol, let's, um, let's talk a little bit about how, um, as a naturopathic doctor, you have come to 
learn about, understand, um, and not be terrified of cholesterol? Right. So, you know, many physicians uh, will look, and actually a lot of the guidelines will say you have to look at total cholesterol, LDLC, uh, HDL, and uh, maybe, you know, the uh, uh, certain ratios like LDL to HDL ratio and, and total cholesterol to HDL ratio, because that's, that's what gives you the most information. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, the correlation between uh, LDL and uh, major adverse cardiovascular events, or we call uh, MACE, MACE, is actually the, the, the correlation there is pretty weak. Mm-hmm. And there are some statistics showing that I believe it's about 40% of, of individuals who have a uh, heart attack, a myocardial infarction, or an MI, actually had normal LDLC levels. Right. So then it becomes the question, okay, so then why are we so afraid of LDL cholesterol or cholesterol in general? And I'm not quite sure. <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of hard when you look back, right? And I've spoken to Dr. Stephen Sinatra about this on the show before, uh, yeah. about just how weak the, the hypothesis was. Sure, yeah. And it still is weak. But there is you ha- when you have to when you look at cholesterol, you really have to look at it from multiple different aspects. You know, mm. is the cholesterol that you're making? Because look, we know that even men who are, I don't know, uh, in their mid twenties, even younger, still uh, they start to develop atherosclerotic plaque. Yeah, and that happens very young. So, why does it happen even- so young? Right. Well, that's exactly what the I was trying to, oh, you know, I'm trying. No, that's OK. Um, what I'm trying to get to is, I mean, let's let's stop beating around the bush. Basically, CAR disease is an inflammatory disease. Mm-hmm. Right. Just like many other conditions, it needs a uh, a lighter or a fire in order for it to become an actual issue. Right. And what you can have uh, normal levels of cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, and still have, or even total cholesterol, and still have um, plaque buildup because what you really want to look at is oxidized LDL. And that's really important. Um, and that's just one of the markers. There are many other markers that people should be, uh, patients and individuals and even physicians should be looking at. So, but Ralph, oxi- can I stop you there? Because sure. um, often on a standard um test at your general practitioner, you get just your HDL, LDL, and total cholesterol. So how do we know Mm -hmm. to confidently ask for an oxidized cholesterol test? Yeah. So not many labs will do it, Uh but there are a few. Um, uh, I know Cleveland Clinic, I think, does it. Uh, Boston Heart does it. There are a few other labs that do it. I think um, Bioreference, THD, they all do oxidized LDL. What you really have to do is tell your doctor, and unfortunately, even cardiologists uh, are not aware of this, uh, but lipidologists are. And right. a lipidologist is somebody who studies lipids, mm. right? who studies fats. And um, they will know the right test to do. So the way to approach your doctor is say like, hey, I know my cholesterol is normal or I know my cholesterol is a little bit high. Um, I have family history of cardiovascular disease. I'd like to check my LDLP, I'd like to check my small LDLP, and I'd like to check my oxidized LDL, and I would like to check other 
cardiovascular risk markers. And then you can go along the lines of homocysteine, HSCRP, fibrinogen, PLA2. When you get all of those things, uh, ApoB, ApoB is a uh, lipoprotein. It's a protein that's found on cholesterol. Mm-hmm. And that has actually been correlated more so with MACE than total cholesterol or LDL cholesterol. So you really just have to go in and confidence say, doctor, you know, um, the, the research shows that the correlation between cardiovascular disease is weak with LDL cholesterol, but it's much more stronger with LDLP, um, with ApoB, with small LDLP and oxidized LDL. I'd like to get these done. And unfortunately, a lot of doctors won't even know where to look. So you just have to provide them that information and they will typically uh, be able to run it. Right. And uh, is there um, a research paper that you can share with us that we can show our doctors, Ralph, so that I can pop that in the show notes? Absolutely. Yeah, I awesome. can share that with you. Um, and I think because that's the thing, like we can say, and then, you know, and rightly so to the doctor's defense, they can say, not everything you see on the internet is true. Um, I know yeah. what I'm doing. And because there is just so much misinformation on the internet. So I find turning up with some research papers um, can be a really wonderful way to say, hey, look, I've been doing this research because I just, you know, I want to make sure I'm super informed. And then we end up sort of having um, doctors rise to the challenge of becoming our health partners and realizing that we all need to evolve with the current research and emerging research. Right. Mm. And and the thing is, is these... Again, you know, I don't expect your primary care physician to be on top of the research on the latest lipid studies. Like yeah, of I, course. I understand they have a lot of they other have a lot things to do. To do. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but I also want to make the point that this is not just for men. Mm. Um, this is for women too. Yeah. And but it just so happens that cardiovascular disease is more of an issue in men than it is in women. Um, but really what you want to look at and anybody who's familiar with this, you just want to say, well, you know, the studies on the Framingham population, which is one of the largest studies that has assessed cardiovascular risk with, uh, cholesterol and ApoB and LDLP, they are, it's very clear cut. Mm. It's like, this is where the risk is. Okay, great. And so, um, in terms of then, uh, like, okay, so there are two things we need to look at here. We need to look at, um, naturopathic. Uh, reversal is that even possible mm-hmm. and the other thing is um, absolute top uh, lifestyle um, uh, mitigations changes to prevent um, the right. onset of heart disease so let's go prevention first always better to start with prevention in life absolutely the that is that is the most important you have to be preventive and proactive in, in cardiovascular disease Although you can be reactive when things start getting uh, dirty, but at that point, you know you're going to be very, you're going to have to be very aggressive. So I won't even start with diet because that's the most important and it's kind of the most obvious. But again, we want to remove again, we want to remove the the catalyst. We want to remove the flame, the lighter, the match that is stimulating this cholesterol and these other. Um, inflammatory markers from causing an issue. So you really want to target, you know, those fibrinogen levels. You really want to target high ferritin levels. You really want to target homocysteine. You really want to target CRP. And the way we reduce those things, um, most of the time is through lifestyle. So exercise, number one, uh, sleep is super important. And again, I know anybody who's listened to the previous podcast with us, I kind of 
just drove that to yeah. the, to the <laughs> we core. Get it. It was, we get it, Ralph. Okay, <laughs> sleep. But I can't emphasize how important that is. Yeah. But there are other pre- pre- uh, preventive measures that you can do. You want to make sure that you're not having too much saturated fat in your diet. Now, okay, interesting. Everybody's, yeah. yeah, everybody's going to yell at me and say, no, saturated fat is good and it's not a problem. Yes, it can be protective, but uh, it really depends on the context. So do not tell me that you're going to be able to have, you know, um, a coconut cream uh, donut and say, <laughs> well, there's, you know, saturated fat in there is not harmful. Yes, it is. Absolutely it is. And we can have a whole conversation with that and you will not win. Is that it because is prob- of the pairing of the sugar and the saturated fat in the research? Yes. Yeah. Yes. You fat and sugar or fat and anything that will increase triglycerides and insulin levels will be problematic and detrimental. Mm. Uh, And also, I don't want to give protein the bypass here, but even very high levels of protein with high levels of fat can be problematic too because if the really a high fat diet or a ketogenic diet Prevents you uh, prevents you from using, um, or basically deprives you of using sugar as energy, and you use fat as energy. Mm-hmm. And if you are, if you, if that biochemical context is set up, then yes, using saturated fat for energy will be uh, helpful and, and may not be as detrimental. But the second you get out of ketosis, or the second you start introducing carbohydrates, that saturated fat is going to be oxidized, and it's going to be um, uh, a catalyst for creating oxidative damage. Mm-hmm. So you really want to make sure that the saturated fat intake is is pretty low. I would say less than maybe 25 grams a day. And I I know I'm going to get a lot of you know uh, clash from some listeners, but I've seen in patients where you cut them off of saturated fat and you increase their uh, monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fats. And their markers completely change. Mm-hmm. So, it's so do the you think there's a genetic issue here as well? Yeah. So there's there's there is a conversation about that with things such as uh, PPAR alpha and PPAR gamma, and mm. these are certain um, enzymes and molecules that Im- impact how well you utilize fat and how well you utilize um, fatty acids as energy. Yeah. And that can be a factor here. I don't know how convincing the research is on that. Um, but I know with my family background, you know, cardiovascular disease, I think everybody's been impacted by cardiovascular disease in my family. And, um, and you want to, I want to make sure that I'm not setting myself up for failure down the line. Mm -hmm. So making sure the saturated fat intake is at a, uh, minimum, like, you know, coconut oil is like the, is hailed by, you know, Everybody's Every man like, and his know, dog. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And that's just not the case. Um, it can be problematic for certain populations of people. But again, it really depends on the context that you're using it. I would say olive oil is a little bit more protective. Um, and fish oil, obviously, oils from fish and oils from plants tend to be a little bit more protective. Now, I, I'm not saying like peanut butter and canola oil. Yeah. I'm talking about macadamia nuts, avocado, um, olive oil, olives. So unprocessed uh, really, is still very much the message, of course. Yeah, exactly right. Mm. So in combination with the saturated fat, also removing the carbohydrates. Yeah, gotcha. Uh, removing the carbohydrates, sorry. So um, as in reducing 
reducing. Yes, so not completely. Again, it's almost, I'm not saying you have to go to a ketogenic diet, but you want your carbohydrates to be from low glycemic, uh, non-starchy. Exactly. Yeah, exactly right. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, it's not going to harm anybody, well, most people, I guess, unless you have one of those genetic um, emerging situations where you cannot process saturated fats. But it's not about becoming terrified of putting a bit of coconut oil in to saute your veggies or, um, you know, cooking your eggs in butter in the morning. It's it's really about the big picture. And right. in terms of bringing those populations of food, let's call them that instead of food groups because I just hate that word, that term, yeah. um, those populations of food that are in your overall mix – um, into relativity, and the best way you can do that is actually by focusing on what you're adding in, which is the veggies. Exactly it right. It seems like we always, everybody now, is just it, everything seems to make sense to come back to that. Yeah, I don't think anybody's ever been hurt by eating too many vegetables. Yeah. I think I we can seen all. It. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. I, I think it's something I've interviewed that we can a lot of people, on. and no one said, yeah, you've really got to cut down on the veggies. But you know what? There are some people who don't do well with uh, cruciferous vegetables. Yes. So I have, I have one patient um, that is actually one of my, I would call it like a poster child, uh, who's also a very good friend. And she went from Hashimoto's to, I mean, Hashimoto's plus many other things, to c- completely like a, re- a new person. Uh, by cutting out a lot of the cruciferous vegetables, a lot of the goitrogens in her diet because she just could not handle them and her thyroid would just be completely destroyed from eating them. So, you know, she eats a lot of spinach and um, uh, escarole and asparagus, a lot of things to avoid the the goitrogens. So, again, that's like the only thing I could say, you know, okay, these people should not be eating these vegetables but that doesn't mean that shouldn't be eating vegetables at all. It's just certain types. Yeah, okay. And so this is when it comes down to an even bigger truth, which is we are all bio-individual and we have mm-hmm. to really tune in more to what makes us thrive and what exactly. what hinders our, our thriving. Exactly. And that's the beauty of precision personalized medicine mm. is that you can individualize it for the person and I, again, we were just speaking about this earlier. Everybody wants me, everybody hits me up and is like, hey, what should I do for this? You know, my 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 creatinine is this and my uh, LDL cholesterol is this and my testosterone is this. I'm like, well, I don't, I don't know because I don't know you. Mm. And I just had this conversation with a colleague, actually, Dr. Carrie Jones. Um, oh, we love Carrie. We've had her on the show. Oh and God. she's coming to Sydney. Yes, she is. Mm. We were just talking about that recently. I'm very envious of her traveling uh, <laughs> recently. We'll look after her. It's all good. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Please, we, we need her. Yeah. I need her. <laughs> um, but we were just talking about this, and we were talking about ev- evidence-based medicine. And yes, I practice evidence-based medicine. But what you have to understand is that evidence-based medicine is trying to take a population of people. So it's applying the masses to an individual person. Mm-hmm. but what I'm seeing is an individual person and applying it and applying it to the masses or comparing it to the masses, mm. right? Which is very different. So I can say the population shows that if you have a APOB or LDLP in this range, then your risk of cardiovascular disease increases. And yes, I can use that information and say, yes, with this person, I need to be more cautious. But 
I'm still bringing it to the person. And that's where evidence-based medicine cannot really compete because it's not individualized. It's, it's for the masses. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, and it's kind of like when I, I think of doing a thyroid test and testing TSH um, yeah. and, um, and not doing all the other juicy bits and you get a normal result, but the normal is a range. And what yeah. might be normal for a whole population might not be normal for you. And this is when, as practitioners, um, you guys would then need to think, well, I, I get that this patient shows normal, in inverted commas, but that's not what this patient is telling me. And that right. is every bit as valid as the blood test. Absolutely right. I don't know if we spoke about this on the last podcast, um, and I don't want to be a repeated broken record, but <laughs> um, please stop me if I am. These ranges, I, I, you know, I get so frustrated when somebody tells me, or even another physician, they consult with me, and I'm like, okay, well, what's the, what's the free T3? Or what was their... Um, you know, uh, PLA2, or was there H, uh, HSCRP? Oh, it was normal. No, 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 no. I didn't ask you if it was normal or not. Yeah. What you're, when they say normal, what they really mean is within range. Mm. And with when did I, did we talk about this? No, we didn't. Go for it. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I love this. <laughs> yes, I am. Here we go. Uh, what we're talking about here is when you say normal, what you really mean is within range. And when I'm, and when you say within range, you're saying this is the, you know, 10th to 90th percentile or 20th to 80th percentile, which basically means you're hitting the 20th to 80th percentile and assuming that all the people within the 20th to the 80th, 80th percentile, so two standard deviations from the mean or 10 to 20, 10 to 90th percent uh, percentile within two standard deviations of the mean are considered normal and that's in quotation marks normal and then if you fall below the 10th and above the 90th then you are abnormal mm -hmm. but that just really means is that most of the people that you measured this is the average this is where you fall within that standard deviation that has nothing to do with whether that's normal or not we are not talking about what what i am discussing or what i want to find out is functional i'm not talking about what is considered you know um, sufficient. Mm -hmm. There's a completely big difference there. So when somebody tells me, yeah, his testosterone was normal at 500. Okay, well, let's look at the range. Mm. Well, if the lower end of the range is 350, then this gentleman is at the 15th or 20th percentile. I, I'm a guy, I don't want to be at the 15th or 20th percentile of normal mm. of my testosterone. Um, or even my LDL, my LDL cholesterol. If 200 is at the uh, 80th or 90th percentile and I'm at, you know, 190, my doctors say, well, that's normal. Well, no, that's not normal. That just means that I am, I'm making more or I have more and I'm trending towards the high side. I don't really want to be at that level. Mm. And it's so, I mean, I remember going to a thyroid lecture once because that's yeah. the kind of person I am. Um, and, uh, I, I, it was, she was just amazing. Rachel Arthur, a local, um, practitioner, and she talked about the, the reverse, uh, no, the T4 and the T3 yep. results. Mm -hmm. Um, now just remind me, is it the T4 that converts to T3? Am I right there? That's right. Yeah. Yep. So she had a little graph of someone's blood tests 
who presented with all these thyroid symptoms and uh, and yet they had been told by three separate people um, that she was within normal range and it definitely wasn't thyroid. But Rachel pointed out that the T4 was up in the 80th, 90th percentile and the T3 was in the 10th, 20th percentile. So even yeah. though technically they're both within range, there was a massive conversion issue that no one was picking up until they then tested reverse, she then tested reverse T3 and you could see that the patient's hormone was all being stored because obviously yes. there was something you know, inflammatory happening. She was being protected. That's how our bodies protect us. And um, it says literally, I'm not going to give you any energy because you need to rest. And that's the yeah. whole thing with the thyroid. So it just blows my mind that so many people are then sent along their merry way thinking it must just be in my head. And that just devastates me. Yeah, it's really unfortunate. And then when doctors only look at just T4 or T3 and don't look at the free T3 and don't look at the reverse T3, it's it's very frustrating. And then that that's what gets into men that's where we get into men's health because thyroid hormone is super important for many functions, but number one for, you know, your hormonal levels, your testosterone, your estrogens and getting those lower, but also making sure your body is doing the right things with your uh with your nutrients as well. It's it's just, it's very hard for me to just overlook it. Mm. Very, very difficult. Yeah. And, um, and just to, so come back to the heart. How was that for a massive tangent? Um, I know. <laughs> it's one of the biggest ones I've ever had on the show. Um, I'm honored. <laughs> so um, we've talked a little bit about preventative and, and um, mm -hmm. talked about really tuning into fats that, make you feel like you're thriving or you know just because saturated fats are so hot right now if you don't feel like you thrive uh, incorporating those in your diet then then maybe you don't and that's okay you know mm -hmm. it really is hopefully 2018 is the year that we can realize different things suit different people um, right. I, I definitely know that drowning things in olive oil is my preferred I, mean, I just <laughs> love the stuff um, and I feel like it, it makes me thrive. But if I eat some big whack of, um, I don't know, like a lot of macadamias or even, um, right. uh, you know, those, those sweet vegan treats that people serve at functions and things because it's healthy and, and it's just yeah. like, it's all made like cheesecakes made with coconut. I, they, I literally <laughs> feel like a lump of lead on the floor afterwards. It's, it just doesn't suit yeah. me and that's okay. Yeah, I, uh, and that's the other thing, you know, one of my best friends, he's vegan, and I had this conversation with him yesterday, and I said, I just can't, it's not that I'm not, I'm not opposed to vegan, I actually think it can be a very healthy diet, but there's nothing healthy about, you know, uh, vegan cupcakes or vegan pancakes, or it's just, you have to be, in the end, it really comes down to smart food choices at all, at all costs. Um, and again, that's part of the preventive part. And then you don't want to have to go into a point in your life where now you have to be proactive or, excuse me, be reactive and then try to reverse everything because that's, that's much, much harder. Mm, yeah. And then in terms of anything else you want to mention on the preventative front before we move on to reversal? You know, I think supplements can be preventive in their own right and they can be therapeutic um, in terms of having preventing uh, further events. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that falls into both categories. And uh, I really, I think the best way to go about preventing cardiovascular disease really is through 
um, making sure you're exercising, make sure you're moving and making sure you're, you're setting, you're partitioning your fuel properly. And that's really what it comes down to. And you have to measure that and, and see, you know, if your insulin levels are too high, if your glucose levels are too high and you adjust based on those. So I can't say do this, but I can say fix this and you want to fix your glucose metabolism and, and your fuel partitioning system. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Um, and there's, there's quite a, a big trend online as well. One of the other huge um, kind of ways of eating that's being talked about is like really going hardcore on um, uh, like fruits and, you know, mm-hmm. going nuts with fruit smoothies and fruit this, fruit that. Um, can we do too much fruit? What's your, what's your take on all of that? Can we do too much fruit? Mm. It depends on the fruit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it depends on how you're eating the fruit. Okay. I find it like I can eat a grapefruit and I'm, I feel satiated, right? And I don't really need to go for another one. I eat a banana and I'm like, okay, I want another banana, mm. right? Um, and that's really, the, it really depends. So the, I think the short answer is yes, you certainly can eat too much fruit. And the reason why is because fructose um, has a very unique um, pathway, a biochemical pathway in the body. It actually does not require any control by glu- glucose receptors. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the one, the, uh, most glucose and most sugar is brought into the cell by an a, a enzyme called uh, GLUT or a transporter called GLUT4. It's glucose transporter 4. Whereas fructose, the transporter that fructose uses actually does not need insulin for it to get inside the cell which is very interesting, right? Mm. So you can have, you can have, bun- that's why people who are diabetic don't do great with fruit. They don't notice a lot of improvements. And that's why diabetics have to be careful with fruit and fruit juices because people who are insulin resistant, they can have a soda, mm-hmm. right? Stimulates insulin. And that insulin, that cell that's supposed to bring that sugar uh, in from the body requires insulin as the signal to tell GLUT4 to bring that sugar in. Mm-hmm. Well, you don't need insulin to get fructose into the cell. So it is a, you know, um, uh, uh, no holds bar, like free for all with fructose. And there is, I mean, high fructose corn syrup, I mean, it's very high, highly concentrated fructose. Uh, it has been associated and can be a cause of uh, what we call fatty liver. Mm. And sugar does that as well. And, and I think high levels of fructose can definitely be problematic, especially in the forms of fruit. Now, it really depends on the type of fruit. So, you know, berries are typically low in sugar. Uh, grapefruit is low in sugar. Lemons, limes. The issues comes with um, things like bananas and melons, uh, pineapple, those are the things that are high in fructose and you tend to be able to overeat them a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it does feel like, you know, you just want more and more and more. It's so true. Like put a right. watermelon in front of any kid and you can see that in play. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you yeah. can eat a whole big oh, yeah. one. Yeah. Me too. Mm. Okay, so let's move on to talking about reversal because this is often, often a tricky conversation yeah. when the, the whole statin suggestion comes up. And um, while there is research, I understand um, that after an event and at a certain age, specifically in the male population, a statin can be an extremely useful preventative tool for further events. And it it Mm -hmm. looks like the research is saying like 70 plus in age or 60 plus in age. I actually can't remember and I will find it and quote it in the show notes. 
Um, But in terms of for, um, for let's just pop you on one just in case, there's a little bit of plaque, what kind of a conversation can we be having at that time with our doctor and what can we be doing lifestyle-wise to potentially reverse that plaque? Right. So there's a few protocols that a lot of people ask me about. There's Dean Ornish, his protocol, where it's Mm. basically a highly, uh, mostly vegetarian, I think vegan. Um, And he he does have some research showing that he has reversed um, coronary uh, artery disease and reducing plaque buildup. Um, But what is really misunderstood about his study is that it involves a lot of lifestyle factors and it's very high in fiber. Mm -hmm. Um, It requires slow walking frequently. It requires uh, exercise. It requires relaxation techniques. It requires uh, high levels of Oprah and a lot of high levels of fiber. So um, I'm not completely convinced that it's just the vegetarian or the the vegan diet that's reversing that. Well, and a lot of these people are moving from eating hot chips at lunch every day and Mm -hmm. fries, you guys call them, of course. Um, I was wondering what it was. Hot chips. This is so strange, isn't it, really? Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, burgers, uh, processed biscuit snacks at the office, and that's what they're yep. moving from. So I often question or, or wonder if actually just moving to a whole foods-based diet, whatever that mix looks like for you and how, yeah. you know, would, would that not achieve the same thing if you did these other fantastic lifestyle um, protocols as well? And that is why nutrition is more controversial and political than mostly anything that I will talk about, except Donald Trump. I think he <laughs> trumps nutrition. Yeah, yeah. Um, we will not go into that. We will not. Um, but uh, that's why nutrition is so controversial, because everybody has an opinion. Everybody's an expert. I mean, everybody eats. And if everybody eats, you know, like if I worked on cars every day, I'd be like, yeah, I'm an expert in fixing, you know, radiators. If I fixed, you know, clocks every day, I would say, yeah, I'm a expert in this. Um, but everybody eats and they eat frequently and they think that they're an expert because they know how to eat. And that's unfortunate because eating is, is medicine, right? Mm. And I think, um, there, it is, it is a little bit of a misconception about, you know, um, a vegetarian diet being able to reverse cardiovascular disease. I really think it is just getting the body uh, under a low inflammatory state and slowing the progression of of cardiovascular disease by preventing further plaque buildup and preventing oxidative damage. Mm-hmm. Um, other things that we could do reactively is I, I am not opposed to statins. I really am, you know, I, I think they have their time and their place. And mm-hmm. you can see, you know, statins reduce the uh, LDLP and the uh, ApoB and uh, we call it the small LDL particles, which we think are problematic. Um, I just want to go into a little bit as to why those small LDL particles are problematic. Yeah, and, sure. And I just want, I want your listeners to try to envision, just like close your eyes and and envision a uh, a cobblestone road. And this cobblestone road is your artery. And within each crack and crevice of the cobblestone road is a an opportunity for a um, an LDL particle to fit in and and you know clamp on and cause some inflammation. Now, if you roll a marble or a bag of marbles down this cobblestone road, you're basically going to have tons of 
marbles in the crevices and and cracks of this cobblestone road. Now, and think of that as a small LDL, and now think of throwing a ton of beach balls, right, <laughs> down a cobblestone road, you're not getting anything mm. in these cracks and crevices. And that's really what happens when you, uh, com- and those are considered the high, um, the large LDL particles. And when you have larger LDL particles, they're less likely to be inflammatory compared to the small LDL particles, which can get stuck in, in the crevices. So what statins are intending to do is just reduce how much cholesterol you make. Mm. They don't necessarily impact how the size of the cholesterol that you make, which is very, very different. Right. And I want your, your listeners to be very clear on what I'm saying here is you stop production of these bad things, but what your body does and how much of the bad things that you make is really up to your body and how much inflammation is going on in a lot of genetics. Mm. But I can tell you that if you prevent you you inhibit your body from having the substrate to make these big or small LDL, then I, I would take my chances with that. And I would say, okay, well, I, if I can say I've reduced my total LDL production by, you know, 40%, and the odds of 40% of that being, you know, uh, redu- reducing that 40% by another 40% of small LDL particles, then that's good. Right. And that's Mm. something that you really want. But it doesn't always happen that way. Mm -hmm. And that's why there's a controversy with statins and reducing cardiovascular risk. But for the right person in the right population, they it is effective. Yeah. But there are side effects. And there is some research showing that when you do lower um, cholesterol levels too low, it can impact um, cognitive function. And that's something that we really want to not occur because, you know, your heart can pump until you're 90, but if your brain doesn't work, then what, what good? What kind is of that a life is that? Yeah. Exactly right. Exactly. Mm. My mom so think... almost had liver failure on statins, so she had to come off them. Yeah. Well, mm. I, actually, that happened to my mother as well. She experienced fatty liver disease from statin drugs. But again, it's not just the statin drug. She was having, you know, uh, fruit juices. She was having cookies and. People think you just have a statin and I could go ahead and, and it have sorts a... everything out. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. no, 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 no. It's not how it works. Mm. So statins are one option and there are uh, healthy statins, uh, excuse me, not healthy, uh, <laughs> natural statins like red yeast rice, mm-hmm. um, which does very similar actions, but it's less likely to cause adverse effects, less likely to increase liver enzyme, less, less likely to increase CK, uh, less likely to cause a fatty liver. But one thing that a lot of people don't realize is berberine. Have you mm, ever used it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So berberine is a um, is a something called a PCSK9 inhibitor. Because we all know what that is. Yeah. How should you not? <laughs> um, PCSK9 is a, um, a molecule that will prevent, it, it reduces your liver from taking cholesterol out of the blood and processing it and getting rid of it. Mm-hmm. So if you have a lot of PCSK9, then you have less LDL receptors on your liver, in your liver. That means your liver is going to let more cholesterol float around in the blood. Mm-hmm. But if you inhibit the PCSK9, then you will increase the LDL receptors and then allow your liver to take more cholesterol from the blood and process it and get rid of it. 
Right. Very confusing, very intricate system. Mm. But berberine, which is found in uh, hydrastis and golden seal, and as a supplement on its own, can be very effective in doing that. Wow, amazing! And yeah. do you feel like um, do you feel like there is there are enough practitioners who are starting to be across these um, holistic options? Like, because that's the next challenge, right? It's so hard for you guys to stay on top. And like, you you find it easy because you're a lecturer, so you're constantly researching. Yeah. Um, as a teacher, but. I, I just think of that uh, naturopath or nutritionist who's got like 50 clinic hours in the week, seeing patients, patients, patients. Like that's not so easy for them to stay on top of this stuff. Um, it's not. Yeah. Um, and I think that's why a lot of people kind of wish that they had. Mm-hmm. And that's why they go to a lot of these continuing education courses. And, yeah. And there are and, some and great that, ones. Yeah. There are. Um, and again, that's probably why so many people – you know, message me and like, okay, well, what do you think about this? And I don't know everything. I really Mm. don't. But uh, I try to know as much as I can. And uh, these are things that unfortunately, it's just not common knowledge. And, uh, and I think what we need to do is through your podcast, and then any other avenues is just to educate people. And, and that's why I really love what I do is I can, I can educate people and I can I can help one person, but if I help one person help ten other people, mm. then it's just you know paid forward type of effect. Yeah. Um, and I you know in in terms of learning this stuff, uh, you know just just keep on playing with the research. Uh, I think Twitter is actually a really good uh, resource oh, wow. for scientists. Yeah, you know Rhonda Patrick, she's a really good scientist who's um who has a lot of she's a PhD and she talks a lot about uh, research. Actually, she just recently posted something that I retweeted, which is about um, <clears throat> blue light uh, being associated with increased risk of breast cancer and prostate Ooh, cancer. Oh yes, I saw that. Mm. Yeah. So that is, I'm not saying there, and I don't think she is saying, you know, blue light from electronics causes prostate cancer. But what I think it is is, what are the type of people who? watch tv and are on their computers really late and are on their phones all the time typically sedentary people Mm. right and uh, also people who may not be sleeping very well again it comes back to sleep so that's how you have to look at the research and unfortunately a lot of people don't know how to read research and uh and i i I wish i could teach everybody but uh, one one person at a time yeah I'm writing down notes to include some research papers here for the show notes. So berberine and or berberine and um, yep. red yeast rice, was it? Exactly right. Yeah, beautiful. Yep, red yeast rice. Mm, awesome. Thank you. Uh, and um, okay, so uh, look, I think we're, we could talk about um, the heart for a long time, but there are a few more audience topics that were very hot that they wanted us to cover. So I'm going to keep us moving now. Um, belly fat. Men and yeah. belly fat. It seems like as soon as, you know, men have a lot of organized sport at school, at university, it's really easy to stay fit because it's all taught, sorted out for you. But then often you go into the workforce, it's the beers after work and, and all the other things, you're doing a bit less sport and the belly cops at first. Why does that yeah. happen with men? So I think it has a lot to do. So central adiposity is really what you'll find in the research mm-hmm. and that's the term that's used and central adiposity or beer belly or you know a big belly or some people call it dad bod um <laughs> dad really bod. 
<laughs> have you heard that or not? No, I haven't. Oh no. God, it's so trendy. It's like dad, <laughs> dad bods, bod. like Poor flabby, guys. flabby. But you know what? It's like people talk about it like it's a it's it's idolized. Like you know, girls like dad bo- guys with dad bods more than you know muscular guys, and um, that's cool. <laughs> I mean, I don't have a dad bod, and I'm proud of that. Yeah. Okay. Um, but you know that is has a lot to do with insulin resistance. Okay. And when your body is resistant to insulin, there's more blood sugar floating around in the body. And it's not just the blood sugar that's causing the problem, but when insulin levels are very high, you're stimulating a lot of other inflammatory processes, right? And when you can't utilize your sugar, then it deposits in your fat. Mm -hmm. Because fat will love, fat fat tissue loves more sugar. That's how fat tissue grows. Muscles take that, sugar and they use it as energy yeah so when you're insulin resistant i mean really your abdominals are not big muscles Mm -hmm. the biggest muscles are really your chest back and legs and you'll but there's a lot of fat in your belly area because you have to protect your organs so that typically is why a lot of men tend to store fat in their belly is because of the insulin resistance Mm -hmm. um and they're just not able to their muscles are not able to use that fat as uh, the sugar and fat as energy and then also um uh, alcohol. Alcohol is probably even worse than sugar in terms of uh, fuel partitioning. Is that if you drink, if you have alcohol or sugar in the body, the body will prioritize alcohol. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And are there any alcohols that are better than other alcohols for men? Um, I don't want to give people a reason or a you know, a, oh, a quantity pass. is always front of mind. I, I'm definitely just sure. want to say that it's not about oh yay, let's all go drink X Y Z, but um, okay. but in terms of uh, sugar and yeast and all those sorts of aspects yeah. of of drinking, um, should one decide to have one or two over the weekend, what would be right. the best choice? I would say the worst choice is beer. Okay, um, and then that explains real- a lot, doesn't it? Oh yeah. Mm. Absolutely. Well, beer is not only sugar, but it's carbs, mm-hmm. right? Um, I would say a very dry red wine typically mm-hmm. can be most protective. And then uh, typically vodka is yeah. very clean and clear, very well processed. Um, it's just alcohol. So I would say a very dry red wine like Pinot Noir and maybe uh, vodka with soda. That would probably be your best bet. Okay, cool. Um, and then the other place that uh, men can sometimes feel the fat creeping up is um, man boobs. And actually, mm. in terms of like a uh, nickname, these guys got called moobs the other day online. And I was like, I had not heard that. Yeah. Mm. So w- is the question, why does that happen? Or yeah, how why, is it that? an estrogen thing? Like why in the booby area? They, they shouldn't have yeah, boobs. They should not. Mm. Um, and that has a lot to do with estrogen. Actually, it's probably mostly to do with estrogen. Mm. Now, there's a difference between um, gynecomastia and man boobs, right? So when when people say man boobs, I think gynecomastia, and that is when there's actually more breast tissue in the male breast area. But man boobs could just be a heavy guy who's holding a lot of his fat in the chest and belly area. I mean, there's only so many places that this fat can go. But what happens is when men start having more breast tissue or more man boobs, um, well, typically, you will go from more fat tissue. Fat tissue is the number one um, 
fuel engine that will make estrogen mm -hmm. because fat tissue has the highest levels of aromatase, which will convert your testosterone to estrogen. And when that starts building up, then you can create more breast tissue, actual breast tissue, like a female breast tissue. Okay. So um, that is that is really what happens is that men are now, they're eating a lot of sugar, which is increasing their insulin levels, which is making their uh, fat tissue take in more fat and sugar, which is then making more fat cells, which then is making more aromatase enzyme, which then makes more uh, estrogen. And then that estrogen will deposit or activate estrogen receptors, which will then cause breast tissue to be formed. Mm -hmm. But then you you also have the double-edged sword where you're now you're also reducing testosterone levels. And then testosterone levels drop, which testosterone can improve insulin sensitivity. And when you reduce insulin sensitivity, you have more estrogen. It's It's such a vicious cycle. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the best way to just halt it is just to cut out the sugar, cut out the carbs, get your estrogen uh, to insulin levels low, and that will typically help reverse these um, symptoms. Yeah. The part, the bad thing is, is that uh, breast tissue is often irreversible. So once the breast tissue is there, it's hard to get rid of completely, mm -hmm. um, depending on how much is built up. Wow. So, but there's still obviously a lot we can do to minimize. Oh, yes, mm. absolutely. Absolutely. A beer and alcohol will uh, increase aromatase levels. Right. And that is why alcohol in general, I just am not a huge fan of that French paradox thing. I just think it's full of uh, BS because mm. I don't think the French are healthier because they drink more red wine. I think they're healthier because they don't stress out about drinking more red wine. Yeah, <laughs> I totally agree. And we talked about this in the last show in that when you actually sit at a French family table, it's really not that much that they drink. It's, right. it's tiny amounts for pleasure to accompany mm -hmm. a meal. Yeah. Exactly right. Mm. Um, okay, so intermittent fasting is something I want to ask you about because a lot of people you know, feel like they want to hit the rapid weight loss train and, and in IF seems to be the thing that kind of comes up first. And I know mm -hmm. there's a precaution around intermittent fasting, fasting of any kind with women and adrenal uh, health and the HPA axis. I wondered right. whether there was a similar situation with men, if certain men need to go through some steps before they try this out based on their um, biochemistry as it currently stands or or is it something that people can kind of just jump into and experiment without much worry i think it depends on how serious they are and how how much they're fasting yeah the research is actually pretty convincing that fasting will suppress your thyroid levels it'll suppress your pituitary and can lower your testosterone levels um and your thyroid levels so go ahead and jumping into a fast for men or intermittent fasting, um, especially over, you know, 18 hours is probably not going to be a good idea. Mm -hmm. I would say the safest is to start for 12 hours. Um, start with 12 hours, which is typically should be normal. And uh, then you can up it to 14 and to 16. I would probably not advise people to go above uh, 16 um, for a long period of time. Because again, what happens is that the body goes into starvation mode and cortisol levels increase mm. because you're not eating and the body needs sugar. So cortisol is going to be released because cortisol's job is to increase blood sugar levels. And then that will cause, you know, uh, downstream effects and cause uh, an HPA and a hypothalamic pituitary adrenal and gonadal and thyroidal access dysfunction. So 
it's not a one size fits all type of thing. I don't say everybody should be doing intermittent fasting. It's and plus, if you're under a lot of stress on your on your own, aside from not eating, like you are, you know, in finance or uh, under a lot of stress at home, those are all stressors that increase the allostatic load and and put more pressure on the body to perform. And and I just um, I don't think it's actually beneficial for everybody. Mm, yeah. So it comes back to there's no one size fits all, and it's not the thing that we should all be jumping to do. Rather to have a look again bio individually individually and i think we've come to a point where um and i remember when i started uh our second course real food rock stars and it, on the second or third day i can't remember what it was but there was this conversation thread that started in the private facebook group and it was like okay so when are we going to get the meal plan that tells us exactly what to eat and I was like, you've come to the wrong course. Like this is actually right. all about tuning in, um, starting to understand our bio-individual needs, uh, starting to understand that if you're stressed, this type of diet won't work. And if you're this, that type of diet, like so it really does come down to so many more individual factors than any protocol or fad could ever convince us to be true. And it's why so many people end up feeling ashamed or secretly um, like they failed when they see all these like rave reviews in these Facebook pages and groups where it's like, oh my God, this is amazing. I've dropped five kilos in a week. And and then, like, there's obviously just something wrong with me. And it's like, no, you just haven't found your way to thrive yet. That's all. Right. And I think it's all a learning process. I, I mean, people look at me like, well, how'd you get so fit? Or how'd you learn how to do this? Well, it took me a long time. I was just blessed that I started at 17. Mm. Yeah. It takes time. It takes time. It's all a process. Yeah, absolutely. It's all a process. Don't expect they quick answers or are, are, they quickly die. Yeah. Um. Okay, so in just to cap off the whole man boobs belly fat <laughs> situation, best way for men to build muscle mass. That's something every guy's concerned about or most guys, you know, want to feel like they're yeah. fit and yeah. The best way to increase muscle mass obviously is through um, weight training. Mm-hmm. That is the best way. So, I think what you might be saying is besides that, what else can men do? Yes. And um, you really want to Again, I sound like a broken record. Uh, you have to sleep. Mm-hmm. You absolutely have to sleep because that's the point in your uh, your basically your biological clock that you're recovering and growing. I know people, and I'm a I'm victim. Excuse me, not a victim. I'm guilty of this as well. Um, is that I sometimes I overexercise, and sometimes I just you know I'm stressed out and I'm like okay, well I got to go to the gym and I got to work out or I got to go for a run or I have to do this, and I'm not doing myself a service. Mm. I'm actually doing myself a disservice and preventing myself from recovering. Um, you never sacrifice sleep, uh, exercise for sleep, and that is really the best way to optimize muscle mass and increase growth. Um, Again, a lot of the herbs that we spoke about last time, like ashwagandha and uh, supplements like DHEA, those are really good uh, approaches improving testosterone levels and optimizing your hormonal levels so that you can perform uh, when you need to, and then you have most more muscle mass. Um, and one other thing is actually pretty uh, underrated is this creatine. Mm-hmm. Creatine monohydrate at about 2.5 to 5 grams a day can increase muscle mass because it allows you to lift more weight and the more stressor and stimulus on the muscle then the more the muscle will want to grow and it's it's very benign so i'm not concerned with men uh taking it so that's that's definitely something that i would advise uh men to start doing 
Okay, cool. Um, okay, that's great. That, that actually seems pretty easy. Uh, and in fact, uh, something that you just said there, sorry, I was just kind of trying to tune into everything and take it all in, but I had a wonderful, um, very experienced PT, Alex Fergus, on the show right towards the beginning of when we started the show. And he mm-hmm. said the same thing. Don't sacrifice sleep for to get a workout in. Always sleep in if you need Never. it. Yeah. And that is something that just, you know, it's again, we feel guilty if we don't show up to our 6 a.m. class. It's like, actually, you're doing yourself a disservice if you need the sleep. Absolutely right. Yep. That's just, that's one of my rules. Mm. And if I get to bed late, okay, well, I'm sleeping in tomorrow. I'm not going to the gym. Mm. Just try it. Yeah, exactly. Right. And there's no harm in trying these things on for size for a week or two and thinking, oh, actually... I had more energy in the day, not not less, as I thought I would by not starting my day with a huge workout. Yeah, give it a try and, and thank me later. <laughs> um, so brain health, obviously something that's massively affected by sleep as well. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, you know, this is scary. The, the level of Alzheimer's and dementia that is starting to present, not in just really, really old people, but, you know, a friend's husband at the moment has just been diagnosed last year with early onset Alzheimer's at the age of 60. It seems oh, like it's getting younger and younger. And, uh, and I mean, you know, there's a whole bunch of assertions that are being made as to why, because everyone's in that kind of medical panic. Um, but what's your right. take on all of this? I think Alzheimer's disease is a, um, it's very clear that there's a genetic component to it, Mm -hmm. uh, but there is also a um, lifestyle component to it. And I think a lot more people are living a sedentary, poor lifestyle, um, not moving very much, eating a lot of sugar. And it's pretty clear that high levels of of, uh, sugar and high levels of insulin uh, promote beta amyloid plaque production and tau protein production. So I really think that's really that's what's um, driving this big factors because we are now in a we are now experiencing the population or the generation that really didn't have to worry about uh, they really didn't know that you know sitting down and being sedentary is a bad thing mm. and now uh, with a lot of these video games and you know kids not going out and exercising as much we're seeing that showing up now with chronic disease and Alzheimer's is Alzheimer's is a disease of lifestyle. That can be very much prevented, uh, not accounting for the genetic factors that are involved, like APOE4 and uh, other other um, um, genetic risk factors, which I, I can't say is certainly my specialty, but it definitely has a lot of to do with uh, hormonal balances, sugar imbalances, and even uh, testosterone at very uh, low levels has been correlated with uh, dementia and Alzheimer's, and that's something that I make sure that my patients understand is that we're not doing this just to you know, improve your libido and make sure you're strong, but to make sure you're strong for a longer period of time and being able to function for a long period of time. Mm, absolutely. That old, um, that, well, it's not an old saying, it's more of a new concept, but the idea that we're starting to die really young, just very slowly, yeah. that's all. Yeah. Um, and so in terms of uh, brain health you know this is where a lot of people say that saturated fats feed the brain it's the main fat in the brain um Mm -hmm. and you know that sort of might contradict our earlier discussion talking about um you know that variety in fats is it in fact uh, incorporating a wider variety of fats that could be a good thing 
to talk about like you know those people who just eat almonds and then they end up with an almond sensitive it's like well if you bought the macadamias next time then the cashews then the brazil nuts that so you just rotated through and made sure there were lots of different types of that food in your diet then that's more supportive could we say the same of fats yeah i think that's absolutely true when i so there's a level where too much fat is problematic and there's a level where too little fat is problematic. And mm. I think we need to find that happy, happy balance here. Um, certainly, yes, saturated fats do make up part and a lot of the brain, but that doesn't necessarily mean that more saturated fat makes you smarter. Mm. Right. Um, it's, 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 it makes sense, but not necessarily true. Um, but yes, saturated uh, fats in general are going to be cardioprotective and uh, cognitive protective or protective of the brain. And those are the monounsaturated and the polyunsaturated fats, which I think are uh, indisputably more protective than the saturated fats. And I'm not saying saturated fats are bad. Yes, certainly you should have some saturated fat in your diet, but it really depends on the source as well. Mm. And uh, also um, MCTs from coconut oil bypass the liver and they go straight into the bloodstream and can go straight into the brain, which is very different than the saturated fat you get from butter. Mm, right. Right. So it's really important to understand the type of fat that you're eating. Um, but I think it would be very safe to say that fats from good quality sources like macadamia nuts and almonds and walnuts and grass fed beef and fish are certainly going to be more helpful, more beneficial and more protective. Uh, again, you can have a ton of fat. And then if you pair it with a high sugar diet, you're not helping. Trust me, you are not helping yourself. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's undisputed evidence that it's the sat fat sugar pairing that is the real disaster there. That's not what we want. No. Uh, and in terms of um, brain health and the research around like, you know, you start to get a bit forgetful. Where are my keys? Like All that kind of stuff starts to set in. What can we do when we start to feel like or our brains are, are just not as sharp as they used to be? What are some of your top recommendations there? Well, I think meditation is going to be number one. Mm -hmm. You want to uh, train the brain mm -hmm. to, because the brain is a muscle, and you want to train it to be able to function optimally. So that's, that's really important to make sure that you do meditation on a daily basis because your brain needs to relax and focus as well. Um, there, I really like rhodiola. Um, mm, and yeah. it, which is an exceptional, uh, neurotropic herb. I like magnolia. Uh, that is very helpful. It's actually has a constituent in it called honokiol, which is one of the only, um, constituents in nature that can bypass the blood brain barrier. Oh, that's interesting. I've got a little bottle yeah. of pure honoki oil. Um, yeah, yeah. So. That's really uh, an excellent herb to use. Uh, other things like bacopa at very high doses can be very helpful. The issue is that a lot of people are using this, these at low levels and mm -hmm. they're not noticing any response. And I can tell you exactly why, because your dose is too low. Mm. And that's because but, the over-the-counter recommendations, like say an iHerb bottle on the back, because it's for retail sale, they can't say therapeutic amounts or doses on those packagings, which is why when you then see a practitioner, often they're like, yeah, yeah, ignore what's on the bottle. You need to take exactly. this much. Yeah, yeah. Okay. you want you want uh, rhodiola at like a gram. Mm -hmm. And I think most recommendations are saying like 400 milligrams a day. It's like, okay, mm -hmm. well, good luck with that. You're not going to get anywhere. Mm, interesting. But do we still feel like even with a herb like rhodiola that we should see a practitioner to just check in with that amount? 100%. Absolutely yeah. right. Great. Yes, you should. 
Awesome. Don't don't go ahead thinking you can do this on your own because it's not that simple. Yeah, and there'll, there'll often be like just that hour that you spend with someone where they just fire a bazillion questions at you. You might find sometimes there's a contraindication or there's something else going on with your health that means you can't pair that with that right now and there needs right. to be a first stage of this and then we'll move on to the rhodiola. Like there are so many factors and I just always like to recommend people you cannot put – I mean it's priceless – one-on-one support it's it's actually Absolutely. priceless yeah and then you on that in that communication you can actually get to an understanding as to why this person might not be you know focusing well enough and mm. that's that's most important and nerve health can kind of impair our cognitive function as well they're they're very much linked right absolutely right and and on top of that also pain mm. pain will i mean you see somebody who's in chronic pain they are not happy and that's because their brain is trying to distract them and and trying to do other things in order to improve their daily function right and in terms of healthy nerves um this is something i experienced going through chronic inflammatory response syndrome with the mold was like one of the scariest sort of symptoms that came at the worst time of it was twitching and tremors and i honestly Mm -hmm. was secretly thinking you know maybe this is it maybe i've got some terminal situation because they are just so scary as symptoms um and then you start talking to people and a lot of people then go oh yeah i always have like a twitchy this or a you know i feel like my hands aren't quite still that's not normal folks like what can we do what what are some of the first steps to explore our nerve health um and and start to nurture our neurons more well, I, I, I'm an acupuncturist, and I think that's probably one of the best things that people can do to promote uh, their nervous system function. Mm-hmm. Now, when you have poor nerve function, you have to understand, is this because of a mitochondrial dysfunction in the nerve cell? Is this because of a signal issue? Is this because of a block issue? Or is this a demyelination issue? You really have to kind of focus and see what is going on. Is it an overstimulation there's all these different factors that play into part here as to what could be causing the problem. Um, I think what most people experience is a mitochondrial dysfunction where they're unable to actually produce enough energy and it changes the uh, potential and threshold of your nerve cells and that's when they can overreact and uh, you know twitch and over um, and cause these type of tingling type of symptoms. Mm. Uh, You have to look at the basics too, like B12 deficiency can cause this type of neuropathy, magnesium deficiency, uh, even CoQ10 at very low level, uh, when it's very low can cause these type of symptoms. So those are things that I would first look at, but I really like acupuncture for doing this because it has such a holistic and uh, whole body approach that it just addresses multiple issues at once. Awesome. Um, and in terms of, uh, so you mentioned a couple of supplements there and the acupuncture in terms of lifestyle factors, does it come back to again, getting enough sleep? Does it come back to meditating, quietening the mind? There are some pretty cool exercises you can do as well, right? To, um, improve like, uh, vagus nerve communication and all that kind of juicy stuff. Yeah, I like, there are other things too, like aromatherapy, which would be very helpful. It impact uh, your cranial nerves. Uh, gargling mm-hmm. is very helpful. Mm. Uh, so that's because that will impact the vagus nerve. Um, there there are other, a lot of other exercises that you can do. Um, in terms of, I think, high-intensity interval training is actually very helpful as well because 
it causes your brain to react very quickly at a short period of time, and then it causes it to react. And that's also how heart rate variability works. So when people do um, HRV training, they can control their heart rate, and it's really not their heart. It's their nervous system which controls their heart. So I think heart rate variability would actually be a great tool and exercise for people. Ooh, that's cool. Very cool. And, you know, it's something that I've found in my recovery to be great. It's funny you mentioned high intensity interval is tennis. So I much prefer a sport to a gym class. And, um, and tennis is very much like, go, 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 stop for 30 seconds. Go, 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 stop for 30 seconds. Um, and I need the competitive factor. Like I got to win this thing to motivate me to (laughs) exercise. I've learned that about myself. Oh yeah. I played soccer my whole life. I get it. Mm, Yeah. So, and I just, I found it fantastic for my recovery. I can't, I couldn't do it in the beginning very long. Um, because obviously when you're really inflamed, a lot of exercise pushes up the cortisol and then, you know, you end up with in a worse situation. But now I'm playing an hour a day, an hour, a couple of days a week. And, um, and oh. I just notice a few really interesting things about my nerves being back. I can't describe it other than to just be able to like separate two fingers and two fingers, you know, that gap test and then separate each individual finger from the rest of the hand, little things like that. And I can do it all. And my handwriting has gotten better since I've started to get better and my nerves have healed. So I just find the nervous system, it it almost feels like as we finish up here, there's, there's a part three where, um, (laughs) I'm I'm all game. (laughs) Um, but yeah, really, really, um, important stuff. So once again, so much juicy stuff. I want to finish by, um, asking you this one last question. So we talked about a lot today. Uh, we talked about, uh, cholesterol, fats, exercise, man, boobs, belly fat, alcohol, uh, brain nerves. If there was one Thing that you thought I just really hope they take this one thing away from today what what would that be wow you're putting me on the spot here I know um, I, I didn't give Ralph this question before our show, so he is totally okay. on the spot well, the one thing that I would tell people to go home with or to kind of to um to kind of like make it a rule for them is um Hmm. I would I would have to say avoid sugar at all costs. Wow. I would probably tell people it's just if you can do one thing, that'll probably save you a ton of issues down the line. Mm-hmm. Is it? There really there sugar is not essential. It has no added benefit. It really it does nothing for us. Mm-hmm. So okay. I would probably tell people avoid sugar at all costs. It's not going to help you. It's going to make your life more miserable. And uh, thank me later. Okay, cool. I'll thank you later. Yeah. Um, cool. On part three. <laughs> on part three, exactly. Thank you so much once again, Ralph. Always such a pleasure to chat to you. And, uh, and thank you so much for adding so much value to our beautiful listeners' lives. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to today's show. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoy having these conversations and bringing them to you. Now, where can you find me and Lotox Life from here on in? Well, you've obviously got lotoxlife.com 
and there we have everything beautifully organized into food, home, body, and mind topics, as well as kids, and a whole bunch of free downloadables and resources to help you inspire you to take community action. And there's amazing A to Z recipes there if you're ever getting a little bit stale in the kitchen, and a whole bunch of articles that I've written. You can also find me on Instagram at Lotox Life and also on Facebook by a page the same name. I make everything super easy, Lotox Life, so you can find it really, really simply. Thank you so much to everybody who leaves a five-star review over on Stitcher or iTunes or wherever it is that you tune into the show. And also to let you know that you can join us on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Lotox Life and come join the private Lotox Life Club. In there, over time, more and more cool stuff is about to be added. It's a place where we can continue the conversations, chat about the weekly show. You're going to get bonus Q&A and all sorts of things over time. I explain everything over on Patreon, so I encourage you to check that out. And in the meantime, I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.